It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. It is not a subject we talk about in casual company, death and whether there is an afterlife, but maybe we should. And after all, we all die. And the question that so many of us avoid is, you know, where will we go when we die? Is death the end? Or is there a soul that will live on after our bodies are no longer animated with the breath of life or heart pumping oxygen through our veins? Will we see loved ones who have passed on? Will we see beloved pets we were heartbroken to lose? And here's the real question. Will we go to heaven? Is there a heaven? And is there a hell where some of us are destined for? The Bible says that all those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will inherit eternal life. It talks about a new heavens, a new earth, a new order, and Jesus returning to bring judgment. But this question of heaven confronted journalist and Christian author Lee Strobel. A near-death crisis put him face-to-face with the reality of his own mortality. And although he is a theologian and well-versed in biblical teaching, he realized that this issue of heaven was not as clear as it should be. So he investigated Uh, The results um, are his latest book, The Case for Heaven, a journalist investigates evidence for life after death. And Lee is also the author of several books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for Miracles, The Case for Grace, just to name a few. And he joins me now. Welcome. Welcome, Lee. Thank you, Lauren. So great to be with you again. Well, it's so wonderful. And, uh, you know, we're just, we've known each other for years um, and I've done interviews with you before. Um, You know, and I have alluded to this before your brush with death, but I want you to talk about it more. What was that like for you emotionally? What happened during that time? Well, um, it happened about 10 years ago. Uh, My wife found me unconscious one day on the bedroom floor. She called an ambulance. I woke up in the emergency room with the doctor looking down at me and he said, you're one step away from a coma, two steps away from dying. And and then I went unconscious again. Um, I had an unusual condition called hyponatremia, which is a precipitous drop in blood sodium level. And what it does is it causes your brain cells to take in moisture and expand. Well, of course, there's no room to expand in your head, in your skull. So you have hallucinations. I had hallucinations, which is common uh, before I went unconscious. And um, the next uh, steps would have been a seizure, coma, and death. Um, fortunately, the good news is it's not going to happen again to me. I did lose a kidney in the process, but mm. you, you can live with one kidney. Uh, so I've learned. And, um, but, um, but as I was laying there, you know, as a Christian, I did believe that if I closed my eyes for the last time in this world and I'd open them up in the presence of God forever, but you know, I'm, I still have a skeptical background, you know, my background's right, in journalism right. and law. And so, uh, it kind of planted a seed for me to uh, sort of a, a discontent to say, how do I know? Are the biblical teachings consistent with history and with science and so forth? So that's kind of the genesis of uh, of the project. Yeah, I mean, you believed in heaven, right? Most people yeah. do. Yes. 84% of Americans believe there's a heaven. In fact, interestingly, uh, 27% of agnostics and 13% of atheists believe there's an afterlife of some sort. 
So, wow. uh, which is an interesting statistic. What about a hell? I think people believe would like to believe in heaven, but not so much about a hell. Yeah, a lot of people are more skeptical about hell, and they, they don't think a lot of people are going there, and, um, and they certainly don't think they're going there. <laughs> who, who would want to believe that, that you were bad enough? I mean, it's like Solzhenitsyn said, you know, nobody wants to, like, you know, crucify their own heart, you know? Right, right. Now, and that brings up another point. Most people do believe, do most people believe, actually, that they will go to heaven when they die? Yeah, I, I, it, generally the the statistics are, are vary a bit, but generally people believe there is a heaven and they're probably going to go there. Um, but then when push comes to shove at those last moments of life, um, that's when people begin to be shaky in what they believe. If they have no good, solid basis for believing it, it's very easy to have kind of the carpet pulled out from under you. Uh, even for strong believers, I interviewed for my book, Luis Palau, yeah. um, who was a famous uh, evangelist. He had shared Jesus with a billion people during his lifetime. And yet he told me in his waning moments, he knew he was dying of stage four lung cancer. He said, um, you know, you, you start to have these doubts. And he yeah. said the Puritans wrote about this, that there's a, um, a, a moments near the end of life where you wonder, you know, is this all true? And am I really going to heaven and so forth? So. Um, I wanted people to be able to have some confidence that uh, the biblical teachings make sense. They're consistent with what we know from science and history and philosophy. And um, my hope is that it'll give people a confidence that they, they may not otherwise have had. Well, you know, what is the m- most interesting thing that you learned during your investigation? Oh, that's a great question. I, for me, the most interesting thing happened to be near-death experiences. Mm, yes, um, yes. I, I was a skeptic. I, I thought this is new agey stuff. This is, you know, this is just an example of oxygen deprivation or a dying brain kind of um, hallucinating at the mm. end of life. Um, and so I started out as a skeptic. Well, I'm no longer a skeptic. Mm. Uh, uh, now, that's not to say that I believe every account, but we do have corroboration in many cases of people seeing things and hearing things that it would be impossible for them to see or hear unless their spirit, their soul, their consciousness didn't really separate from their body at the time of clinical death. And this tells me that, indeed, we do have a consciousness, a soul or spirit that does survive our clinical death. How long, we can't say. But um, I think the near-death experiences, by the way, we have 900 scholarly articles that have been written about near-death experiences in, in uh, respected um, theologic, not just theological journals, but scientific and medical journals. So this is a well-studied phenomenon over the last 40 years. It, and, and so, Explain what these are for people who don't understand what near-death experiences are. Yeah, it's a phenomenon that occurs. And by the way, it's been projected as many as 300 million people have had this experience Mm. uh, around the world. But at the moment of clinical death, um, uh, you have an out-of-body experience. And there's a common core to what happens. Um, You float out of your body. Often you watch the resuscitation efforts going on. Um, and you, um, you go off to a, a place, often down a tunnel uh, mm. towards some light. You often meet deceased relatives. You are frequently in the presence of an incredible light that you interpret as being Jesus or God. Um, some people have a life review in which they, um, they, they see not just the impact of what they did in their life on other people, but they see how that ripples through to other folks they didn't even know about. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and so that's very common as well. And then they'll return to their body. Um, now, what's interesting is the Bible says you're appointed once to die and then the judgment. Uh, that's irreversible death the Bible's talking about. This is not irreversible death. This is clinical death. They're going to come back. And so um, it's, it's a little different than being dead permanently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, uh, I interviewed a neuroscientist with a PhD from Cambridge, and she said, all we need is one corroborated case of a person's uh, having this out-of-body experience to show that indeed we have a spirit, a soul that, that uh, survives death. Well, in my book, I document a whole bunch of cases. Um, for instance, Pamela Reynolds, she was 34 years old, a housewife from Atlanta. She had bleeding on her brain and had to have this highly unusual emergency surgery in which they cooled her body to 60 degrees. They drained every drop of blood from her head. So she was, clin- she was clinically dead. Wow. Uh, they they uh, put um, earplugs in her ears that had this 100 decibels of sound, which is the equivalent of a freight train going right next to you. Um, they taped her eyes shut. And um, and yet, even though she was clinically dead, she had zero, by the way, three tests showed she had zero brain waves. Well, mm-hmm. she, after the surgery, she survived somehow. And she, she said, I was conscious the whole time. And what? <laughs> yeah, she said, I, I watched this procedure and she was able to describe this highly unusual saw that was used to cut into her skull that you would never have guessed what it looked like. And she was able to describe it in detail. She also described the conversations in the operating room where one nurse said, um, we have a problem. Her arteries are too small. The other nurse said, well, try the other leg. Um, so is it, this the one who actually also could describe a red seal or red label on the opposite side of the ceiling fan in the operating room? That's actually another case where a a woman died uh, in England after uh, an abortion and um, she, her spirit uh, floated up and she was able to see a red sticker on the top side of a fan blade in the, in the emergency room. And, and, and she, you couldn't have known it was there. But my favorite example is a woman by the name of Maria and she died in the hospital and her spirit floated up and she watched the resuscitation efforts, but then her spirit floated all the way through the hospital and out of the hospital. And when she returned to her body, she said, oh, by the way, there's a tennis shoe. It's a left-footed man's dark blue tennis shoe on the roof of the hospital, on third floor landing of the hospital. And there's a little wear mark over the little toe and the shoelace is tucked under the heel. Well, they went up and they found it exactly as she had said. So you go, okay, this is corroboration. You know, as someone trained in law, this tells me these people really did see something they otherwise couldn't see. And by the way, one study was done of 31 near-death experiences of people who were blind, most of them blind since birth, and yet they could see during their near-death experience. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, one woman named Vicki was killed in a car accident, um, and uh, she described um, she had been blind since birth. But she described uh, watching the resuscitation efforts. She described meeting childhood friends in heaven and seeing them for the first time. And then when she's reunited with her body, she loses her sight again. Uh, one medical oh research. Yeah. So this is medically impossible. Um, so uh, I really think, Lauren, that this kind of corroboration does tell us that there is 
a survivability to clinical death, that we do indeed survive clinical death. Well, what is the soul, though? Does science have an understanding of what the soul is? Because it's got to be different from your mind, from your brain, right? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. There's about 95 references in the Bible to the soul, but it never it never just describes it or defines it. It, it, it presupposes that we all know we have a soul. So it talks about the soul in a lot of different contexts. The soul is equivalent to the spirit or consciousness in that it is the locus of our introspection, our volition, our decision-making, our memories, and so forth. Um, and it is, it's distinct from our brain and yet interacts with our brain. Um, now, a lot, a lot of scientists will say, no, 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 we just have a brain. We're just a brain. Um, and, and there is no such thing as consciousness, and it's an illusion. And by the way, free will is an illusion, too. That's what uh, atheist Sam Harris will tell you. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think the evidence is there for that. Uh, and, and I mentioned I interviewed a woman by the name of uh, Dr. Sharon Dierichs, uh, who is a neurosurgeon with a Ph.D. from Cambridge. And she said, um, let me give you a little thought experiment. She said, pretend there's a woman by the name of Mary. And Mary is the world's leading expert on vision. Mm -hmm. She understands how the eye works. She understands how the brain interprets um, impulses from the optic nerve and creates vision. And she knows every uh, fact about the physics and the structure of the eye and how everything works. But she's blind from, from birth. What if all of a sudden she got her eyesight for the first time? At that moment, would she learn anything new about vision? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, she'd be able to see. And, and that's the difference. It's, it's like the brain gives you a third person perspective, kind of the facts. But the, the um, consciousness is the first person experience. It's, it, she would be able to see for the first time. She would have the experience of sight. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the difference between the physical brain and the consciousness, consciousness or the mind. I want to ask you one thing about the, the near-death experiences, though. This is the one thing yeah. I had a question about in terms of, you know, what, what people see. Does their cultural experience influence mm. what they see when they have these near-death experiences? I mean, does a Hindu see something else and a Buddhist see something or a Christian will will, will recognize Jesus? But would a Buddhist rec- uh, recognize Jesus or, yeah. or, or, or a Muslim? Right. Great question. Here's the, here's what I learned. I interviewed John Burke. John Burke has studied a thousand near-death experiences. He's also a Christian pastor. Uh, and he, what he concludes is that when, when you uh, look at the core that's common to near-death experiences, they are consistent with Christian theology. That's a big statement. Wow. Now, um, one guy studied non-Western uh, near-death experiences and Western near-death experiences and found virtually no difference. Um, John in his research said, I never met anybody who had a near-death experience and the result was a reincarnation type of experience or anybody that met Shiva, the Hindu god. Um, uh, He said, "What's, what's important is you have to look not at how people interpret what you see, but what they actually see. Mm -hmm. So for instance, let's say a Hindu dies and they're standing in the presence of a figure in white. And this is often what's described. It's almost like his clothes are woven out of light and has a book. He holds a book. Now, uh, a Hindu might say, okay, that's the book of karma. 
and he's trying to determine how much bad karma I need to pay off in my next uh, incarnation. That's an interpretation. Um, a, a figure in white holding a book would also be consistent with Christian theology. Right, right. So, so you have to kind of strip away how you interpret it versus what is actually seen. And, um, and, and when you do that, you find that, that it's consistent with Christian theology. That was a big breakthrough for me because I used to think, well, um, you know, you, you don't see people uh, going through a judgment like the Bible describes. Well, no, the reason you don't is the judgment happens at the consummation of history um, to people who are irreversibly dead. These are people who are clinically dead. They're not at that point yet. Um, the other interesting thing is about 35% of near-death experiences are not pleasant experiences. They're horrific experiences. So they went to hell? They went to hell. They went Ooh. to hell. I'll give you an example. Uh, Howard Storm. He was an atheist. He was the chairman of the art department at a secular university, a tenured professor of art. And he died. And these, these figures beckoned him to come down a hallway, which he did. They seemed very friendly. And, and, um, but it was a long walk, and he kept walking, kept walking. And all of a sudden, they became belligerent. And all of a sudden, they became abusive. And then they attacked him and, as he said, tore him to shreds till he was roadkill. He, oh said, he, he said, there's no horror film or no uh, horror book ever written or filmed that could approach the horrific nature of what he went through. And he called out in the middle of this for Jesus to rescue him. And sure enough, a, a, a figure in light comes and rescues him. Well, this was so transformative for this atheist that not only did he renounce his atheism when he came back <laughs> around, not only did he become a Christian, he resigned his tenured position at the secular university, became an ordained pastor, and to this day is a pastor of a tiny little church in Oklahoma. Wow. Um, it wow. transformed his life. Well, I'm going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith um, Podcasts. We'll be back talking about you know what heaven is like, what hell is like, and um, things like that. We'll be right back with Lee Strobel. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. All right, we're back with Lighthouse Faith, talking with Lee Strobel in his book, um, The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. And one of the things we talked about before the break was about atheists and the idea that an atheist would not believe in heaven or hell. But is there, you know, there's so much about theology and Christian theology and faith that even Christians disagree on. But yeah. this idea of Anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ would be consigned to hell um, and not go to heaven. That mm. seems really narrow for a lot mm. of people. What is, what, is, what is it you found out? Yeah, I found there's a lot of misconceptions about hell. Um, one misconception is that God sends people there. Um, he doesn't. People, uh, it, uh, through their own choices, uh, end up um, separated from God. Hell is not, according to most theologians, a place of fire and uh, darkness. Uh, those are metaphors. In fact, even the great reformers like Calvin believed these were metaphors. This is not something new. Um, 
Uh, and the reason is, if indeed hell was flames and darkness, the flames would light up the place, and you wouldn't the darkness wouldn't go would go away. So um, those don't really make sense. Um, the, it's not a torture chamber. Torture comes from without. It's someone um, inflicting intentional pain on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is torment, which comes from within, a sense of regret uh, that, that people might feel. Um, also, rebellion continues in hell. It's, it's not, as one theologian told me, that people are really good blokes, but um, they're <laughs> just not good enough for letting them out, uh, to let them out. Uh, the term that's used uh, in scripture is a gnashing of teeth. And we see that used in the killing of Stephen in the Bible, um, expressing anger. And so this this uh, gnashing of teeth uh, suggests that people in hell are, are still angry at the idea of God. For them to be in the presence of this God that they hate would be hell. Um, the other thing that's important, I think this was the key to me understanding the whole thing, mm-hmm. is that, um, and I document this in the book, that um, there are various degrees of suffering in hell. Um, and, and this is based on parables uh, that Jesus told. But I think the, the, um, the clear implication is that it's not one size fit all, fits all. Mm-hmm. So in other words, uh, Adolf Hitler is not going to have the same experience in hell as my next door neighbor who hates the idea of God, doesn't want anything to do with God, lived his life as an atheist and um, has, no, has no interest in being with God. So it's sort of like let the punishment fit the crime kind of exactly, thing. Exactly. And, and, you know, Lauren, you're right. I mean, it, it let the punishment fit the crime. It's almost like, um, you know, we can trust that God is fair. And, um, um, you know, it's interesting in, the, in Genesis, it says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And I think we trust that God will do right. And that no one, having been judged by God, will legitimately be able to shake their fist at him and say that was unfair. We will all ultimately see the fairness of God's judgments. But is, is hell something, a reality in which that, you know, that just to scare people into being good or believing in Jesus? I mean, this idea of hell and damnation, even from the sense of torment, um, seems a little not like a loving God. I and mean, this is what the things that, that Rob Bell talked about. Yeah, and this 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 troubles people, um, uh, understandably so. Uh, you know, it seems like overkill in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> literally, yes, yes, yeah. overkill. Yeah, literally. But you know, I think we have to understand that um, there are individuals who want nothing to do with God, and you know, what's a good God to do with that? Um, he's not going to impose himself on people. Uh, love requires a choice. Um, um, to love or not to love. And uh, there are those people that make the choice to, to live a life that is uh, counter to um, um, following Jesus. Um, so now some people have tried to mitigate it by saying, well, maybe people don't go to hell as much as they're annihilated. That is, they're, um, those who spend eternity with God immediately go to be in his presence. Uh, others are snuffed out of existence. And they say that would be better than eternal conscious torment in hell. And there is a pretty darn good biblical case you can make for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was surprised at how robust the case is for what's called annihilationism or conditional immortality. Um, however, my conclusion is it doesn't in the end carry the day, that that there are too many theological holes in it ultimately to carry the day. But uh, but there are many uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for instance, believe in annihilationism. 
Um, and a lot of young pastors um, are, are believing in it these days. And, and explain what annihilation is, actually is again. Yeah, it would mean that uh, for an atheist who denied God his whole life, didn't want anything to do with God, that uh, at the time of death, he would be or she would be snuffed out of existence. Um, their consciousness would cease and um, that'd be the end of their existence. Um, that saves them from spending an eternity separated from God. Um, and as I say, you know, you can make a good case for it. Now, mm -hmm. what's interesting, Lauren, is probably the greatest Protestant theologian of the 20th century, John Stott, yeah. um, often called the evangelical pope of the 20th century, um, believed in the end, at the end of his life in annihilationism. And this rocked, this rocked the Protestant world that, uh, oh, my goodness, our Protestant pope <laughs> believes in annihilationism. And as one person told me, he said, you know, I'm not going to use the word heresy when John Stott's involved. Right, so, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he's no dummy and he bought into it. And, and that's why I say you can make a good case for it. I just don't think it carries the day. I think I point out in the book issues from the Old Testament and the New Testament that I think are run too contrary to it to, to embrace it. Um, now, there's something else though we were talking about atheists and I really want to answer this question because I have many friends who are atheists yeah. um, and they're good and moral people they're upstanding yeah. people they're loving and caring and the idea that why would a good God deny them heaven just because they don't believe in Jesus and I, I am yeah. asking this question again because I, I talked about that before but the idea that you know people you know that you go to hell or that you, you're kept out of heaven because you're a bad person yeah. Or because you don't believe in Jesus. So why is it that you've got very good, loving people who could be really denied heaven because of, of you know, kind of a technicality, what, what they see as a technicality? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and I think the answer is um, there, it's a misunderstanding um, of, theolo of Christian theology. Um, um, in other words, it isn't just, oh, I don't believe. And so because I can't bring myself to believe, I'm going to spend eternity in hell. No, the Bible says that um, we all have a moral code written on our heart by God, and we all violate it. We're all sinners. Um, an atheist who denies the existence of God is, in a sense, spitting in the face of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay for their sins and offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of grace. Um, so we're all sinners. We, we all sin. R Romans 1 verse 20 says, we all know or should be able to see from uh, nature that God exists. And yet we suppress that. We deny that. We walk the other way. Right. And, and, and so this is, it isn't just the fact that, oh, I don't believe the right thing. And so I'm headed for hell. It's that, no, we're not good people. Uh, we are all we're all fundamentally flawed and we do bad things and we do good things for bad motives. Uh, we, we give to the to the Red Cross because we get a tax deduction. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, it's mixed motives and so forth. Uh, so we're not good people. Um, and, and I think we, we tend to short give short shrift to what sin is uh, when we think we are. Um, and yet the New Testament and the Old Testament both say whoever sincerely seeks God will find him. So I think that means that whoever sincerely seeks the one true God will find a way somehow um, to respond to this free gift of grace. And they can accept it or they can reject it. It's their choice. But um, that opportunity, I believe, will be offered to them in some way. I, I think my book, The Case for Miracles, where I talk about this phenomenon in the Middle East, where Muslims in closed countries where it's illegal to share the gospel are having dreams in which Jesus appears to them. Wow. And, and, and these are so well documented that there's an ad that runs in the Cairo newspaper that says, 
Um, call this phone number and we'll tell you about the man uh, in white who you met in your dreams last night. Wow. Oh, yeah. This is, I mean, I document this in my book. And, and there's, again, external corroboration of these dreams. Um, but I mean, I, I, that's an example of how God bends over backwards for people um, and, and gives them an opportunity to uh, respond to his message of hope and grace. Now, there are two things, there are two terms uh, that I want to talk about before we go. One is part of, you know, at least Roman Catholic. Um, theology, and the other yeah. is not really, but the idea of purgatory and the idea of reincarnation. Let's talk about purgatory. Yeah. What does your investigation find out about purgatory? Uh, it just is not biblically supported. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there is a, um, a passage in the second Maccabees, which is not a book that, that Protestants um, consider to be inspired by God, but Catholics uh, include in their Bible. Um, that is suggestive a little bit of purgatory, but even that is not real clear. Um, they now, purgatory interpret- is kind of a way station, like, you know, a place where people can kind of, you know, do some good works and then they can pass on to heaven or accept Jesus or something like that after they die. They've not accepted Jesus before they die, right? Yeah, there's, there's two interpretations. One is um, it's punitive. So in other words, it is uh, you will pay your... Um, uh, your dues, your, your the penalty for your sins in this way station, and then be purged of those sins so that you can enter into heaven. Or the other model is um, only holy people can get into heaven, only perfect people. We all die with, um, you know, in, in a various state of unholiness. Um, and purgatory is a way just to complete that process toward holiness. And uh, so you can enter into heaven. That's the kind of purgatory, by the way, that C.S. Lewis believed in. C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis believed in purgatory. Um, but it's that, right. Well, the great divorce is all kind of about that sort of right. purgatory station. Right. But it's just not biblically supported. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I just don't, I, I just don't um, buy into it myself. Yeah. It's kind of, you can almost, you can almost say it's kind of wishful thinking that we, we want yeah. there to be a place like that for people who we know that we loved that did not believe um, in Jesus. Yeah. Um, what about reincarnation? Um, is, yeah. this, is this contrary to Jesus's teaching or can you kind of incorporate that within the, uh, the Christian theology? It's not just contrary. It is the polar opposite in a sense of Christian teaching. And the reason I say that is Christianity is the only world religion that is based on grace. Every other world religion is based on doing something to try to earn your way to God. Christianity says you can't earn your way to God. Um, Jesus paid the penalty we deserve for our sins. He offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. So that's that's what distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. Now, reincarnation says that you can't even... Um, do enough good deeds during one lifetime to earn your way to God. Right. You've got to go through multiple, maybe even an infinite number of lifetimes to try to earn your way to God. That's why I say it's the polar opposite of grace. Um, and there is no heaven in theology involving reincarnation. It's nirvana. Nirvana is not like heaven. Nirvana is described as what's left after you blow out a candle. Um, in other mm. words, it's the extinguishing of yourself. Uh, reincarnation is not something that um, you're supposed to long for. It's you want to get off this wheel of suffering and you want to be snuffed out of existence um, like a candle. Um, so and it's got all kinds of issues, I think. Um, for instance, um, if you're paying off bad karma, bad things that you did in a previous life, but you don't know what you did, 
You're in this life and you're going, why am I suffering so much? I guess I really messed up in my previous life and I'm paying for it, but I can't make it right because I don't know what I did wrong. Um, (laughs) It just seems seems fundamentally unfair. And then it, it, it discourages people from charity because if someone is suffering, you don't want to help them and you want to relieve that suffering because they need to go through that suffering to pay off their bad karma from a previous life. So to extend charity and to feed the hungry and house the, the homeless, um, you're short circuiting the process of them um, paying for their bad karma and you're actually hurting them, hurting them more. Wow. That's an interesting way to think about it. Okay. Yeah. Before we go, before we go, yeah. one of the big seven questions that you ask, and I yeah. know you've got seven in there, but the one that everybody kind of wants to know is, will my pet be in heaven? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. That's the number one question that people ask. Uh, and I can understand it. We've all had pets that we've loved. And I had a dog, Nikki, growing up and I love that dog. And um, by the way, I have cats. And I know you say in the book that no cats will go to heaven. But that's yeah, funny. that's that's that was a joke. Frankly, I know. Frankly, problematic, Lauren. Um, <laughs> but, but no, I actually had a, a few cats in my day um, and they were fine. But yeah. um, <laughs> but here's the way most theologians look at. It. They say, will there be animals in heaven? Yes. The reason we know is animals were part of God's good creation before the fall. Um, There is imagery in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, about animals in heaven, the lion laying down with the lamb and so forth. Right, right. Um, But the question you're asking is, will my specific pet dog or cat be in heaven? And there is no answer in Scripture. It's just not provided. Um, uh, And and people are really... um, mixed on their opinions. Uh, Alan Gomes, the theologian, says, I don't believe there will be p- pets in heaven. Uh, others like Johnny Erickson Tata uh, believe there will be. And she does it from the attitude. She says, you know, it, it would just be like God uh, out of his outrageous, outlandish grace that he would do something so outlandish, like providing an opportunity to have further life with my beloved pet it would be just like God and his love to do that. Um, that's about all you can base it on. There's no scripture that says one way or the other. Wow. Well, Lee, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And again, the book sure. is called The Case for Heaven, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for Life After Death. It's a really fascinating book. Boy, I learned a lot. So I just thank encourage you. people to go out and get it. And thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. My pleasure, Lauren. Love you and all that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to the Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.